You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. Back by popular demand, his as well as yours, is Mark Logan, IOD Director of the Year, former Skyscanner CRO, Startup Advisor, and NXD. So welcome back to my living room, Mark. Thank you, Vicky. One question this week, which is distilled down from one that was submitted in and also as highlighted by CEO Tom Adula in episode 16. And it is, as our business grows, none of the things that worked well before, none of the things that I am good at, seem to be working. Our productivity is falling, we're not hiring as well as we did, and as CEO, I feel increasingly distant from the mechanics of the business, which scares me. Is this normal, and how do I fix it so that we don't self-destruct? I know that this is a question that you've spoken about before. I want to kick off with your general thoughts about what's behind this question. Sure. So if you you stand back and say, what are the two main reasons why startups fail? I'd say there's, there's, there's firstly the issue of did we really understand product market fit? And there's a lot that could be said about that. But on the assumption that, that your startup gets that right, and that's a big assumption, but the assumption is it does. And the second reason that startups and, and indeed larger organisations tend to get lost and sometimes fail is, is because of organisational design. It's the thing that we tend not to focus on because it maybe doesn't sound as exciting as product and all the things that go with that. But it's absolutely crucial to understand that as a leader of a startup, as much of your time should be invested in how we do things as in what we do. Now, the the problem here is that this is not a a static consideration. How you do things successfully at one level of scale changes. It has to change at at other levels of scale. And the kind of generic problem that you're describing here, Vicky, to my mind, is that we tend to double down on what used to work at just mm-hmm. at the point where we should change everything. Um, so, for example, let's imagine that you, know, you and I start a company and on a Friday afternoon we get together with a local pub and talk about plans for next week. And that works really well for the first 10 employees, first 15. But then it starts not to work so well because some people can't make it to the pub because they've got children to pick up or they don't want to go there or they're busy that afternoon and suddenly you find that 30 employees, 15 of them resent you for not communicating properly because you haven't updated your communications mechanism. Now, that's a, a trivial example, but it's a small example of the, the systemic problem, which is that three things change as your business grows. The processes that you operate, the dynamics, if you like, the structures in which you operate those processes, and the people who actually populate them. The, the interplay of these three things is what needs to be updated as the business grows. And that's the, the root of, of many of our, our problems because we fail to update them or we fail to model them and think about them explicitly. At each of those touch points, are there different or indeed similar signs that come through that are an indication to you that maybe it's time to step up to the next mark? And how do you get there? Yes, yes, absolutely. So let, let's let's drill into that a little bit. The first thing is let's give these points a name. So let's call these organizational inflection points. And you can characterize them as 
you're adding people for a while and you get correspondingly increased outcomes and then you start or you continue to add people but the rate of outcomes drops off so either you're not getting any more or in some cases you're getting less outcomes because yeah, suddenly new problems pop up and things go wrong that didn't expect to and yes or a team's productivity paradoxically suddenly collapses so you get less done because of these these prior issues of process people and structure and how they interplay so how do you know if you're in one of those inflection points well I would say that usually you don't know you're in one until you're very deeply into one. But the way you get early indication, it's not revenue or user growth or any of those kind of things. It will certainly show up in those in due course. But it's important to think of those as lagging indicators. You know, the, mm-hmm. the mistakes you make today, you will see in next year's revenue if you're lucky enough to still have revenue next year. But the, the leading indicators for this is usually frustration amongst your people, especially your best people. People used to be engaged and fulfilled in the business are now registering frustration at you and at the general circumstances and at each other. And teams tend to turn on each other in these inflection points because you know the thing we're best at as humans is arriving at plausible reasons for stuff, which aren't necessarily the actual reasons. And one of their favourite plausible reasons is that guy's a bozo. That's mm-hmm. the problem. If only you got rid of him, it'd all be much better. So... That's the way to tell you're in one is that you, you start to see rising frustration and you don't quite know why. And that's the indicator. Interesting. I certainly experienced that about the 30 people mark exactly as you suggested. But do they replicate themselves in a similar way? Each kind of inflection point, however much that has scaled up. Yes, very much so. So, so my experience of both being in these circumstances and working with other companies who are in them, there's a geometric progression and at some point we'll give it a, a name. But um, for now, the progression is round about 30 to 50 people, round about 100, round about 200, 400, 800 and so on. You will hit these inflection points. And the, the thing that's changing, which brings them about, is you're adding people to the business, which causes the three things you mentioned earlier, people, process and structure, to scale out. And uh, the way you get through these inflection points is it's quite a counterintuitive thing. You have to change everything. So you don't double down what used to work. You have to change uh, your structures for sure, the dynamics and processes you operate with, structure with. And you have to change people. And when I say change people, I don't mean you have to fire everybody and hire new people. That's sometimes necessary. But you have to change how your people and how you as a person uh, operate within the company as well and uh, it takes an enormous amount of effort to get through these inflection points sometimes the business starts to uh, spend all of its energy in transforming itself and hence there are less outcomes even less outcomes mm-hmm. than before which can cause panic on your board for a while but um, it recognise that when you hit an inflection point a lot of energy is going to have to be spent on it and is it something that you can slightly prepare for in advance by either budgeting for or thinking about personal development your own as well as your teams or is it something that you have to live through it once survive it to recognize it and be prepared for next time well there's theory in practice you know in practice um, it's one of these things that most people don't believe this phenomenon exists until they've experienced it so trying to explain to somebody before they've had the first experience that it's going to happen is, is difficult. 
Now, after you've experienced it, and you know, there's a real value, I believe, in modelling situations. So rather than just say, well, that was a left field issue that almost killed the company, like, let's move on to greater glory. If you can stand back and say there's a model here, and the model is every doubling of staff, for example, we're going to hit an inflection point, then you can start to, to mitigate and prepare for the inflection point. It's, it's, I think it's impossible to avoid them, but you can shorten the duration by being more uh, aware of them. And uh, you know, to, to answer how do you prepare for them, let's let's talk about when we say change everything. What change it to what goal is the key question? Because if we understand to what end we're changing things, then we can start to make some of those changes or be ready for them before the actual need arises in, in greater you know greater um, sort of traumatic circumstances. So the the way to think about uh, how to navigate these inflection points. Is the variable I think you want to hold constant, so that it's not a variable, it's a constant, mm-hmm. yeah. is, is agency. Now let's define agency. Agency is competent people, reasonably well aligned to the strategy of the business, who have the ability to make decisions without referring uh, up many chains of, of approval and have the resources to get that done. Now, if you think about the first four employees in a company, it's a pretty safe bet that all of them have agency. Yeah. You know, that you can do all the things I just mentioned. You might be a founder, etc. Think about employee on 104 or 504. If you can if you can honestly say that they have the same agency that you had when you were employee four, then you're doing just fine. But I think we all know that, that the severe likelihood is that agency tends to drop over time. But our goals as leaders in these companies is to maintain agencies near to its originating level per capita uh, uh, later as it went as, as, as at the start. Um, so that means that, you know, if I, I'll give you a, a practical example of that. If I'm at uh, 200 people and I see frustration levels rising, probably when I talk to people, and you should, you should go to the front line of your business and ask, you know, why, mm-hmm. um, you will find that people can't get stuff done. And then what you want to start doing is trying to diagnose with those people uh, why they can't get stuff done. And then reinstate agency by, for example, creating structures where decision-making is further devolved to the front of the business and ensuring that, that staff can competently operate that agency, which is to say that they are heavily capable in operating within a large company. They understand the latest techniques for releasing software at scale or for automating testing or for collaborating at scale. You've got to invest in all that stuff. Um, now, if, if we go a step back before you've hit those inflection points, if, you, if you're if you monitoring the agency almost as one of these qualitative metrics on a, a paranoid basis, uh, so you're always looking for drops in agency, you're yeah. always speaking to the front line of your business and finding out what they think and encouraging them to critique the operating environment, then the chances are you'll put more of these things in place before you need them, and that can help. So it's not about are you happy, are you motivated? It's about do you have self-determination, do you have the agency to do what it is that you need to do? It's interesting because you talk about that frustration and, and everybody falling out, and I definitely lived through that, and, and it came exactly in that period when I was trying to I was trying to step you know, hmm. extract myself out of day-to-day decisions. I'd been that early founder, you know, who kind of like accidentally briefed product because yeah. they just had a great idea in a meeting, forgetting that that was a product meeting and now they just changed the roadmap 
um, <laughs> by mistake. <laughs> you know, I knew that you know you have to extract yourself from that. I brought in certain manager roles. I brought in say a CTO. I brought in an FD, and I suspect that probably some of my original team or my early team were quite frustrated by that because they they were doers, and now there were non-doers coming into the team and and it, it took me a little while to pick up what all of this frustration was about and I mean we tried to solve it we were edging towards the right thing but with no path we started to try to figure out everybody's responsibilities and accountabilities because what one of the symptoms we were getting was this is manifesting itself is I can't do my job because they don't do their job well enough mm-hmm. or they're not doing their bit properly so that's holding up my problem or, mm-hmm. or you know, nobody's being clear about what's my responsibility and what's their responsibility. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, kind of, it became a huge mess of things that I'm appalling at. You're probably good at because you're, you're from an operational perspective, but, but process maps and dependencies and mm-hmm. uh, sorry, responsibility and attributions are not my strength. <laughs> But I'm assuming that was probably a symptom of exactly that thing. To roll it back a little bit, if now going back into that prepared, what would be a better way to kind of handle that? Well, so let's, let's run those scenarios again. And this time you are pre-prepared with a paranoia around the agency index. Mm-hmm. Now, you're, the discussions, some of the things you just mentioned there, um, I can't get anything done unless they do their bits. Now, what we've just described there is one of the things that removes agency, which is dependencies. I depend on those people. And as a company gets bigger, their priorities, to some extent, necessarily become overlapping, but not fully aligned to, to mine. Therefore, I'm waiting on them. And therefore, I'm, I'm, I've lost agency because I can't act. So one of the things when, you, when you're re-engineering your company structures is to ensure that the things that need to get done that you've minimised handoffs and dependencies. Mm-hmm. And that's a question of structure. So, for example, a classic you know, example of a transformation there is moving from a structure which is very heavily functionally siloed into one where multidisciplinary people are located in the same units. Um, you've removed handoffs there because they've now got the same mission. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you know, there's, there, there's a, a clue there in the, the alignment issue. Um, you mentioned you know that adding managers didn't didn't necessarily help. So let's again look at this through the the agency um, lens to overuse that mm-hmm. uh, in that metaphor. Now, when you were the person who made all the decisions, you had agency, you decided things, you got them done. As the company grows, as we add people, your vector distance from the front line of the business increases. So therefore, if you're still the decision maker, then the, the latency in your decisions increases too, and you don't really know what's happening in the front mm-hmm. line of the business to the same level that the people on the sales team or the marketing team know for their areas. So your your quality of decision making goes down, and they become more passive because they don't feel that you know they're they're making these decisions. Now let's say that you now drop in a layer of management to fix that problem. Well, if you think about it, you haven't really fixed it because. It's not necessarily the case that that layer of management has any more uh, proximity to the issues than you do. They do in the organisational chart, but have they ever you know done that job in your company? Um, you know, have you given them authority to make decisions on your behalf, or or was that something you thought you communicated? Had you made them competent to make those decisions, like really really properly onboarded them over six months? Um, 
they may feel they may feel like professionally they're ready, but when it comes to big decisions, they'll come and refer to you, or they won't make decisions, or they'll get into groups of other managers and make consensual decisions, which are never the best decisions. The people who are still out in those leaf nodes in the front of the business aren't seeing any real improvement in service. So you've got to start to get agency. You don't start from you know, this, the founder and work towards the age of the business. You consider it from the age of the business and work in. And if you can say, well, that layer of management does create agency for these people for these reasons from their perspective, you're probably going to be okay. But that's the question to ask. With every change you make, does that keep agency the same? We raise it or lower it for the people on the front line of the business. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when I say agency, I don't mean autonomy. Yeah. Autonomy I define as I can do whatever I want, but I'm not necessarily competent to do it. Agency is I can do what needs to get done to align to the formation of the company, but I am also competent to execute that. Um, there's a clue there for maintaining agency means maintaining competence. Yeah. And being a you know being a, a leader of a three-person marketing team, leader of a 50-person marketing team requires different competences. So investing in your people through that journey is likely to keep that agency in front. Taken to its extreme then, does that mean you're almost, your hiring process is almost in reverse in that instead of you as, as a CEO or a founder, you're thinking right now I need some managers, now I need a team lead. It, it's almost like as you're seeing your your people at the at the edge there struggling or mm-hmm. at the limit of their competency or mm-hmm. at the limit of their capacity, you're thinking, okay, right, what do I now need to add either to this team or to a working group mm-hmm. to take that to the next level of required competency? How, how does that... Because it's interesting because in the question, and I re- really relate to this, the person says we're not hiring as well. I'm not actually sure that is true. It's not necessarily that you're not hiring as well. It's that this team isn't working as well and you're not getting these people in bo- on board as well. But is it because the thinking is the wrong way up? Well, it's a very good point. I, I highly favour, you could be criticised for this view, but I highly favour a minimalist approach to building hierarchy. So... I would tend to want to build the minimum, you know, oversight that uh, allows the team to still still function. We often build uh, structures and populate them, you know, on a kind of top down basis. But uh, if you if you put agency at the front, you take a sort of different view to that. And it's always better to have too few people than too many in a business, mm-hmm. because one of the things, and maybe the major thing that takes away agency is time spent operating the bureaucracy of the business. Now, let's, let's take a real example. One of the things that, that's necessary for agency is alignment. So, for example, from the, the CEO and for that matter, the board, through to the front line of the business, everybody understands the mission and the objectives. And within that, that reality, you can operate with a high degree of autonomy because you're aligned. And, and I know you're aligned, so therefore I'm not worrying about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, that all sounds wonderful. A lot of businesses make the mistake of increasing the level of alignment because surely more alignment must be better than less alignment. But what they don't realise that they're doing is they're creating a bureaucracy to operate that alignment and that bureaucracy exponentially sucks time from 
the actual job itself. So let's, let's say that we decide every three months we're going to all get together and align our objectives and uh, make sure that they all get aligned on the same day and they're all reportable in the same format. We build a tool to support that, etc., etc. Then one day we wonder why our, our, our productivity is dropping. Um, we ask our frustrated people and they say, I can't get any work done around here because I'm in another alignment meeting. And uh, as you add management, there's always going to be a, a inevitable increase in, in a bureaucracy. And that's bureaucracy is not a bad thing, but too much of it is a bad thing. And we don't set out to create too much bureaucracy. We set out to solve a problem and then unwittingly create the bureaucracy that comes with it. So given that, that uh, paranoia is the watchword here, given mm. a paranoia about things that remove agency, you will think very carefully about management and any layers of management. And I would rather um, people got frustrated because they felt the task was too big and that's the signal to hire, than felt frustrated because there was too many people stirring the pot, too many managers to defer to, too many consensual decision-making sessions, etc. Yeah, interesting. And I know I made that mistake. And, and I think when I was deep in that mistake, it was hard to see a way out of it except to retreat back to what I knew, which was to make it smaller again. I almost kind of really wanted, when, when the wheels were falling off everything at 30, what I really wanted to do was to go back to 10, mm-hmm. where I felt like I had it right and have another shot at doing it differently, which isn't really very workable either. And I suppose like it was definitely, we were in a kind of crazy situation of getting less and less done because we were having more and more meetings. Mm-hmm. And the costs have trebled because... And that's a really expensive layer to add in. And I think probably it wasn't a layer that we needed at 30 people. Maybe we at 70, at 80 people, maybe, probably, who knows. But I think we were trying to follow a blueprint of what an organisation should look like long before we needed to look like that. And we weren't listening internally enough. I wasn't listening internally enough or didn't actually necessarily have the skills to be structuring that in a way that would work better. Mm. You, you talk about measuring agency. Any examples of how? I mean, is there a metric used with that? Do you survey people? Do you walk the floor? <clears throat> All of the above? Well, that's a great question because I've come to the conclusion over the years that there are some really great pseudo-qualitative metrics that were you able to measure them would be, you know, very accurately would be great. But just because you can't easily measure them doesn't really reduce that much their the value. So the presence, let, let's imagine let's imagine we took your business and split it or cloned it. So we've now got two businesses identically set up. And then one goes forward with this idea that everybody in the company uh, thinks about agency. Another company, that concept doesn't exist. Yeah. Now let's... Although there are ways to measure agency with proxies like you know productivity and frustration levels, these are all worthwhile things to do. But just the presence of having the concept of is the agency of employee 504, mm-hmm. same as employee 104, etc., will change behaviours and change how you think about problems. So, for example, when you sit with your senior team and say, let's design the organisation, you wouldn't say, other organisations have a layer of management here, we should have one. You would say... Um, what change will increase agency or maintain it as we grow? You might well conclude that extra management is required. Don't get me wrong, that's mm. often helpful. 
but you would conclude it from a different direction yeah. with different emphasis. So there are other places in life, I mentioned frustration levels. It's not it's not that you can hold a frustration meter up and measure frustration, but by being... <laughs> oh, it's just sometimes <laughs> it comes at you like a big wave. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of like the it. weather forecast. Yeah. You can feel it. Yeah, you, you know it when you, when you see it. And, and uh, therefore, you're not having it on a chart doesn't mean it's not valuable. So I, I, there's a kind of set of human metrics that um, are measurable by proxy, for sure, mm-hmm. but are invaluable as concepts. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how I would, I would think about it. What are the human metrics? Remembering that the software, for example, is not a technology problem, it's a people problem. Yeah. What are the human metrics that you should strive to make uh, part of the consciousness of the team? And then to the extent that you can sample those or, or measure them by proxy, that's all well worthwhile. In business, we tend to only, it's a cliche, but, you know, measure that which is measurable, you know, rather yeah. than that which is important. Um, I, would, I would urge not to worry too much about how measurable and graphable is frustration or agency, but you will know by walking the floor, by talking to your frontline people, by setting up forums where they can complain about the business uh, safely, you will know where these, where these levels are. Yeah. So many, I think so many people that I saw when I was starting up that I work with now, they start a company because they're really interested in solving a problem or they're really excited about it or they've got a really good idea. And it's almost the whole, now I have people. <laughs> it's sort of like you woke up one day and it's like, how, how the hell did this whole company thing happen mm. around me? And that the fact that that happens at multiple stages mm-hmm. is, I mean, it must be quite interesting as you go. I mean, I have Tom, who I spoke with a week or two back, he's now at 100. And he was saying at 40, they had to change everything. And, and I was kind of thinking, at 100, you probably will again. Yes. So I know somebody else who's just lived through that phase. And mm-hmm. you know, they've now got an, uh, an office in New York, an office in Sydney, an office in London. And that's killing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they adapt to that whole process in its diff- in different ways, I guess if you're at a hundred, you must be robust enough from a financial perspective to be able to start bringing in a level of experience that's probably two or three businesses past your own. Is there a way that younger businesses perhaps can tap into some of that stuff before they can? afford it and, and how do mm. they make sure that they're ready to hear what they need to hear it's like, like all these questions there are um there are pros and cons to every such decision or there are dangers with every decision so let, before we address the direct question let's consider this idea of bringing in people that are two or three scale levels beyond um i would say maybe one or most two scale levels beyond is safer because it's just as hard for the a, a software engineering director at Google to scale down as it is for um, someone to scale up. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of people at that level who have operated, you know, for example, Google's best practice software development but never implemented it. What your business needs is someone who can say, where are we today? What does Google look like next? Mm-hmm. Let's go through a transformation. It's a different set of skills. So, so often you'll see people come in and fail to scale down. So you've got to just be, you know, a little bit careful with that and that said absolutely bringing in people at the next level above and um, they're not so far away from your current reality 
is is often absolutely the right thing to do. The problem that you find, of course, is that um, there's not enough of them. And uh, if you can solve the there's not enough of them problem, then you're going to probably do well as a company. So consider, for example, you know, we're, we're happy in Scotland for this discussion. There's not um, you know, hundreds of $1 billion companies, so there's not a huge number of people you can hire locally to, to address that problem. And uh, we can lament that or we can adapt and embrace the reality we're in. So I think it, in this modern age where there's a huge amount of best practice information on the internet that we can access instantaneously, uh, the, the best way to deal with this issue before you can afford to bring in somebody from one of these other companies that's got a track record is to grow your own people. Mm-hmm. Now, um, that's an obvious statement, of course, but what I mean by that is is it is possible to turn your people outward to really instill in them a, a very strong impetus to learn almost maniacally about how things are done in the next bigger companies, to phone those companies up and go and see them, you know, to do that networking, and not in your local area where everybody's the same size as you, but wherever you have to go. And it's relatively cheap to do it. I've found Silicon Valley companies are quite willing to share with other companies because there's a, actually quite a good community in tech, as you, as you mm-hmm. may well know. Um, but your people have to be looking outwards and striving to seek out best practice. You know, we, we've talked here about how companies scale, but the, the as important, if not more important thing, is that we as individuals also go through personal inflection points. And it feels pretty rough when you're going through one. You feel like a failure and all that stuff. You know, you feel like you're at the bottom of a, you know, a pit. So like, oh, <laughs> oh, Stop it, it's going to make me cry. Yeah. The, the metaphor I prefer to use there is, in those moments, you're, you're not at the bottom of a pit. You're actually in a cocoon. You're, it's just as dark, but you're very much closer to getting out of it. So you, you will hit those moments when you go through this leadership journey. But I would... I strongly recommend that when you're in those moments and pre and post them, that you maniacally learn from everything you can about people at the next level of scale. And if everybody in your company is doing that, or even 30% of them, then you will probably find that that takes you a long way before you really need to bring in, you know, a lot of other people. And maybe you yeah. all have to. But... And that's a really good point, that you need to give the permission for that. You need to create the structure for that. You need to make that not just as as okay but even more okay than going to go to a conference mm-hmm. I, I i have a little bit of frustration with conferences they're often very passive uh-huh. passive learning packaged up in sales events and the best things that i've learned from exactly i went on this really good um, trip to silicon valley eight nine days and during that time we spent a morning or or a day at places I went to like Eventbrite and Julia Hart's CEO there kind of hosted us and talked about stuff. We went to Next Door, which was just brilliant, where they talked about how they'd raised all this money, then realised that, that their idea was never going to work, and then had to spend the next sort of like 12 weeks coming up with a better idea, or they were going to have to give their $100 million back to the investors. And just all of this kind of stuff, going to LinkedIn and, and seeing you know, how they recruit versus Google across the parking mm-hmm. lot. I mean, a very big parking lot, but, you know, how they do it. And it, it was it was really, really interesting. It's one of those things where it would solve so many problems to actually be really systematic mm-hmm. about that. 
it would it would expand your talent pools, it would expand your skills, it would bring so much into your companies and as individuals. Because I mean, I think often startups are terrible places for personal development. I mean, like your professional skills get honed down a certain path because you're having to teach yourself everything. But that includes all the bad habits that you teach yourself. There's very rarely somebody there to show you a better way how to do it because you're all making everything up. So that's actually a really like that idea. And that's one that definitely people are listening implement. Yes, because you know, you've got mathematically speaking, you want to avoid local optima. And your company is a local optima. You've got to have that look outside. You know, it's not done as often as it should be because a lot of people are so busy trying to get today's job done. And that's very yeah. understandable. But it's absolutely vital. And if you do it well, I mean, I remember to take Skyscanner as an example, that our many of our directors, had they left Skyscanner and we tried to hire them back, we couldn't have um, afforded them at three, three times the price. <laughs> but when they started in Skyscanner, they were far more junior, far more inexperienced. But by, by their great discipline in reinventing themselves and learning from everywhere, and by the company trying to create that kind of environment, we got world class people. We maybe didn't think they were in world class at the yeah. start, but you know they, they absolutely absolutely were. So so that that's important because it will take you a lot further, and you know it's very difficult to bring a senior person in to your company. I mean, it works, it works really well, but just as often it doesn't work for yeah. a whole bunch of reasons. So you know companies should look as much into their own group of people as they do outside and set an expectation. Of world class excellence, you know, it's not good enough to be the best, uh, the best manager in, in your country. You've got yeah. to set a world class standard, and uh, if you set that, people respond to it, and it can take you a very, very long way. That's probably one of the more actionable things that I've I've heard in that context because it's really difficult to think how do you help your people develop themselves. A, when you don't have a vast budget, but also when formal training... I mean, I've I've tried getting people coached and all that kind of thing, but a lot of that is really very corporate-orientated and it it doesn't fit the reality of of what their working world looks like. And I think most of the investment in, especially early stage, is entirely in the founder, is entirely in the CEO, which is, is a... A pressure and not the best place entirely to focus there, if, especially if, if they're not being enabled with the skills to hmm. put that through the rest of the organisation. So I'm mindful of the time, but do you think there's a particular thing that the companies that crash and burn at each of these inflection points fail to do? Is there a sort of a set of indicators that you, as you look back on performance and go, you know what? It was almost inevitable that they were going to overshoot. You know, they weren't going to lift. They were just going to crash and burn at this phase because they didn't X. But yes, I mean, there's a lot that could be said about that. But I think the, the generic issue is a failure to step back from activity and say, how does this look from a distance? Uh-huh. Um, we, tend to, we tend to enjoy being active. And activity is a great distraction from reality. <laughs> so be it the fact that your product doesn't fit the market or the organization's not working anymore, our solution is usually to get on with the job. And if a business can, can stand back regularly and say, we're not just what are we doing, but how are we doing it? And face that problem in a very kind of 
on on a modified on on sort of softened way, it's likely to do a lot better than if it uh, avoids those discussions and those those reflections. I think what you're kind of saying in a lot of this is you you've got to stop and apply your brain and stop throwing activity at it because activity is actually making everything worse. Stop, observe, mm. and yes. and reposition. Activity is the enemy of reality. <laughs> I love that. So we do need to, you know, stop what feels comforting to, to look at what what's, what good is. And it's very hard to do it. We've got a board meeting next week and slides to prepare and there's a you know, hiring meeting next. But you've got to craft out that time. And, uh, you know, I'd summarise it by just saying how you do something is as important as what you do. Uh, but you typically see in governance, informal and formal, that there's an awful lot of time on what and no time on how. And uh, that's the thing I think we all need to try and bring back into the into the discussion. Fabulous. And if that was ever a theme for this podcast, let's get to some how here. Enough with the advice already. Just tell me how to do it. Thank you very much, Mark. You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Mark Logan, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Arts. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or at vickybrock.com slash podcast. Um.